0: Hello, thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exists to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the sermon podcast. Good morning, Downtown Hope. Uh, As Joey said, I'm Colin. Um, And by the time you watch this, I've probably actually been here almost exactly two months to the day. So uh, I just wanted to give a brief shout out to you guys, say thanks for uh, reaching out if you have. And if you're a middle school or high school student, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my sincere apologies. Let's make sure we get connected. Uh, And I just want to take a second also and brag on uh, the student ministry team here at Downtown Hope. There's There's a group of leaders that are very special Um, They're really passionate about middle school and high school students. So they're the ones that have actually been investing in the students uh, for years, even before I arrived here. And so I just wanted to let you know that our team has been praying about this coming year. We've been seeking the Lord and his heart, and we really do have a vision um, for deep discipleship for middle school and high school students uh, in in ways that transforms them, equips them to also disciple people and their peers and their local schools. We wanna see transformation in our school districts um, so if you are uh, in any way, uh, if that tugs your heart and you want to be a part of this, uh, this team that is reaching students, reach out to me, Colin, at Downtown Hope. Um, and even though I've only been here two months, and even though COVID has made giving, getting to know all of you guys so difficult, um, God has already used this body to challenge me and encourage me. Uh, but today, uh, the title of this message is called Victory in a Wilderness of Defeat. Uh, would you join me as we read uh, Numbers chapter 21? Uh, When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Ithiram, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. So the Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them in their towns. So this place was named Hormah. Then they traveled from Mount Hor. Uh, along to the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and they said, We've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on the pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, um, for uh, Lord the, the, the word that uh, we, we have this morning. Uh, Lord, a book that sometimes um, doesn't get opened enough uh, by believers all around the world. But God, we thank you for the insights that Numbers 21 brings that reveals the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, Lord, we thank you that um, even in the midst of these uh, stories of the Israelites in the wilderness, Lord, you bring about truths, you bring about convictions for our life uh, through this word that is like this double-edged sword. I pray, God, today that you would put me aside, that you would, uh, Lord, just let your words be illuminated into our hearts that bring conviction, but also push us and motivate us to, to share these things with people in our lives and our circles. Uh, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So my wife and I recently um, got married, and it's been, it's been really good. You know, we've been married a solid two months, and everything's fine. <laughs> um, but I can honestly say that uh, marriage has already, you know, revealed many issues, uh, with me, of course, not not my wife. she's perfect. Um, but as we've combined households, um, we uh, have been kind of running into these more of these uh, moments of tension, uh, and I'll just share this one story because. My, my wife, um, I know she loves me so dearly, but there's one thing in this world that I think she might love almost as much as me, and it's this couch that's in her living room, um, and our living room now. <laughs> uh, this couch that she has, she loves uh, so much, and as we were combining furniture into her house, um, we were moving things around and shifting things around, which is mostly because of me, um, and she wanted this couch so bad that we decided we're going to keep it, but we're going to um, keep it upstairs, and so I had to move the bad couch down to the, the basement. So we live in a townhouse, and there's narrow stairwells, so you're not going to go down the stairs. And so we had to take this couch out around, down this grassy, like really wet, slippery hill. Um, and me, it was me and her dad doing this, all right? And this is one of those like, dual recliner couches that, like, they're not light. It was a lot of work. And so we ended up taking this couch down to the basement, and we get it down there. We set it up nicely, and I'm like, I'm never moving another couch again in my life. And then Sarah comes down, and she's like, "Uh, well, guys, I just figured out that the couch that I want to keep that's upstairs, there's nowhere else to put it, and I want to put this one down here, and I want to take the leather couch out. And so I sat there. I didn't really make eye contact at first. And, I, and so long story short, I figured out the right answer to this, this whole solution. It's just to get rid of the couch and bring the other couch down. Um, and for me, I remember there's been moments like that where we've just been like talking through things and working through things. And I say that lightheartedly because I felt like some, and to some degree I, I, there was no winning in that case. Either I was going to break my back you know, carrying this heavy couch again um, or I was going to have an unhappy wife that doesn't like the couch that we have. You know, and so there's moments in our life where defeat can kind of be uh, overwhelming, and that's a lighthearted kind of thing. But in this passage, you're going to get this idea of the Israelites and how defeat plays into their lives. So just as we go into the wild and experience God's grace in our rebellion here, give me, let me give you a little context, because the Israelites have been wandering right now for almost 40 years at this point. This passage follows after Moses' public failure uh, that inhibits him from experiencing the promised land and enjoying it. And now the Israelites start to move south in order to go around Edom. okay? And so now, it's in this part of the passage in Numbers that the Israelites were actually so close to the end of their 40-year journey, or what I like to call their 40-year time out in the wilderness. And they were so physically close, if not closer, than the generation before them. So as you remember, we read in verses 1 to 3 to summarize, this Canaanite king knew the Israelites were coming up this way. And so he decided to actually... Attacked them and he did, and he captured some of them. And so Israel was like, all right, Lord, if you give these guys over to our, into our hands, and uh, we promise to destroy their cities. Um, and so the Lord listened Isra- to Israel, and he gave the Canaanites over to these guys, and they destroyed their cities, and they called it Hormah. And at, at first glance, you know, this passage seems relatively optimistic, right? But if you've been tracking with us in numbers um, and through this series, you're probably hesitant to really get your hopes up <laughs> And I completely understand that. So, but sometimes we learn what not to do from the Israelites' mistakes, but we can also learn from their victories, and we're gonna see both of those play out today. But if you were to dig a little deeper into this passage, you'll notice something that really wrecked me this week. If we reflect on Numbers 13 and 14, you'll actually see a connection that I never really picked up on before. In those two chapters, in 13 and 14 of Numbers, the Israelites sent spies to Canaan. If you remember this, they were sending spies out to scout the land that God wanted them to take. And long story short, the spies came back with this report and they convinced the Israelites that the land was all that it was supposed to be. It was great, but the enemies were greater, right? And so God had told them they were gonna be taking this land, but they convinced themselves that this land was unable to be conquered. And so as a result of their unbelief, God told these people that their generation would not inhabit the land and they're to turn back away from the promised land and towards the wilderness. The consequences made the Israelites mourn, and so they actually ended up trying to fix their mistake. So God was telling them these consequences, and then the Israelites were like, uh, okay, we'll go fight now. And so if you remember anything of what happened in this moment, um, this, this, this is like a presumptuous self-confidence that the Israelites are like, going into this battle here with. But do you remember at that moment what happened? When they disobeyed God and decided to fight this battle, they got absolutely demolished. So if if you go to chapter 14, verse verse 45, it'll say that the Canaanites and and the others who lived in that country, they came down, attacked them, and they beat them down all the way to Hormah, all right? And so they experienced a massive defeat. And I learned this week that it was actually at the same location. It's actually at Hormah when Israel was defeated in chapter 13 and 14 in their ill-advised attempt to enter the promised land by force after they rejected it by faith in Numbers 14. But do you see what's going on? Almost 40 years later, God is literally bringing them back to the place in which they knew was a scene of tremendous defeat and generational sin. Can you, can you imagine for a second the thoughts and the feelings of the Israelites like, as they physically approach this place? Like Think about it, this is the very place that God initiated this 40 year like, journey of death in the wilderness for the Israelite nation. Can you imagine how they felt? Like, I'm sure there were some that were probably actually kind of excited because they realized how close they were to the promised land. Um, but then I'm sure there's some as they, as they got closer that all they could think about was what happened at this place. Um, and now imagine, like, they, they're approaching the same location and they get attacked, right? If if those people were alive, if they were young kids when that initial 40-year demolishing happened for them, I'm sure like all these landmarks would bring back memories and all these kinds of things. It, it it had to be like this flood of emotions as they as they approach this same location. It it had to be like revisiting a memorial, so to speak. And for those of you who have visited a memorial before. You know, you know what I mean. Like when you when you approach something that is memorializing something that where where people's lives have been taken, there's there's a weight that you feel when you enter into those moments. And but now here we are 40 years later, same location, same scene, but a different generation and a different outcome. So the generation before them responded with unbelief, which was followed up by a presumptuous self-confidence that led them to getting crushed by these Canaanites. But this new generation responds differently they respond with faith and so if you can feel the tension that I'm trying to bring out in this passage it's, it's this generation is being used by God right now to literally turn graves into gardens they're, they're literally turning loss into gain pain into peace and defeat into victory in this moment you see when I graduated college I went out to school by Pittsburgh and when I graduated God actually called me back in my first ministry job to start um, working in my hometown and you probably got, you, all you guys probably know what they say about prophets in their hometown. If you don't, you can look it up. But for me, I didn't want to go home. And going home for me meant facing the things that I left behind four years ago. And when I was to c- compare who I was four years after college, and, or four years of college and high school, it was like night and day. And so God really. Uh, was calling me back into the storm of my life in this case. And so I go into this school, into the Lewisburg High School, to connect with some students, and lo and behold, it's the same secretary that was there when I was in high school. And so I walk in the door, and she goes, Colin Savage. (laughs) I was like, this is going to be good. (laughs) She's like, what in the world are you doing here? And I was like, well, uh, (laughs) actually, I'm working for a church now, and I'm doing youth ministry. And she goes, no. (laughs) One of those just like you, like you, I, her, her response was completely valid, um, and, and it made complete sense, but that shows you exactly kind of what I was walking into. And what I realized, though, after that, and what I realized by God calling me back home, is that you know God had redeemed me, and he was doing a work in me, um, but he really had intentions of, of redeeming my past. And, and sometimes I want you to see from this passage that, that, that in order for us to really understand victory, there's going to be times when God has to take us to places of past defeat in order for us to actually experience true victory. So, so hear me out, okay? Of course God wants us to experience victory like in the present. But, but more than just a present mo- moment, like pr- physical victory, God really desires full redemption. And so to experience victory in the midst of the wilderness of defeat, we should not only expect God to take us to those places, but we should be confident that he will actually redeem them. And that's because the victory that God desires the most is really the victory of our hearts. I believe God is using this season of COVID-19 to recalibrate the hearts of each of us as he works in our lives and wants us to be fully restored, not just having confidence in the future, but also resting in his redemption of our past. And maybe it would help you to hear it like this. He wants, you, he wants to take you back to the, the places of your life, take you back to the, what we would call the hormones of your life, those cities, right? The place where all you can remember is failure. The, pa- the places that all you can remember is pain and heartache. You got to think about it more clearly. Is, is there certain areas of your life that maybe you don't share with others? Is there past mistakes that still show up in your mind and haunt you? You know, I don't want you to take on these kind of places like the first generation with unbelief and this presumptuous self-confidence. Instead, I want you to give him those places, allow him into those moments where you feel the most shame and you have the most doubt. In this season, I encourage you to ask God to take you into those places of defeat. And as we journey to see victory in a wilderness of defeat, this passage gives us some more truth to cling to. In verses 4 to 5, if you're still with me in Scripture, it says, after all this had happened and the Israelites had this victory, they were traveling and they grew impatient and they spoke against God and against Moses. And they started grumbling again, right? So why did you bring us here, they started saying. They were saying, they're saying there's things like there's no bread, there's no water, and this food is terrible. And so after this awesome victory at Hormah, I'm sure that there was like some sort of like celebration right, and rejuvenation, almost like the crossing of the Red Sea, like June said. Um, They must have been celebrating what God had done, but I bet you there was something about the celebration that had to do with the reality of how physically close that they were to the promised land. Like they were literally on the threshold of the promised land, closer to to it than the previous generation of unbelief had been. And now they're acting with the same unbelief. Actually, it sounds like the same old thing we've heard over and over again, but some scholars actually believe that this generation was now grumbling the same amount, if not more, than the previous generations. So, what tragedy happened that made them go this way? What happens to this generation that looked more promising than the last? How does this happen, you know, right after they experience like this redemptive victory at Horma? And as I studied this passage, I realized something. And it really does give us some insight into what's going on with the Israelites, because I believe the tension and the frustrations most likely rise when it feels like they are going backwards. The Israelites had experienced this great victory, but you have to track their route to notice that actually where they are going, their direction actually never changed. They are still moving in a direction that requires them to go towards the wilderness and away from the promised land. Like, maybe maybe some of them thought, like, this monumental redemption victory was, like, their next, like, step to actually claiming the promised land. Whatever the case, it seems as though the closer that they got to actually experiencing the blessing of the promised land, the more opposition that they faced. See, they knew their 40 years of wandering was winding down. And they knew uh, they were close to the promised land that God had promised to this generation. Like, Like, I'm sure they had a countdown on their Instagram story for this moment. And so on a small tangent, right, just to kind of like encompass the feelings of the Israelites right now, how many of you guys remember how the Ravens did last season? I'm not, okay, I'm not one for sports analogies. Actually, I think they're cliche, but I had to share this one because uh, for me, how many of you guys thought the Ravens were gonna be like Super Bowl champs, right? The best football team in the league. I thought they were the best football team in the league. They were definitely gonna win the Super Bowl. Um, they had this absolutely amazing season. I mean, I was on cloud nine, and I could have convinced anybody uh, that they were gonna go all the way. But then, the playoffs happened right and this abnormal 2 week break happened and that defeat to the titans after this like victorious season stung so bad you know it literally still makes me cringe just thinking about it but as i as i prayed through this passage this week i realized that sometimes life can actually happen this way right so just like the israelites when god is leading us and redeeming us sometimes the greatest blessings can be met with the greatest opposition Sometimes in life, our greatest victories can be followed by our greatest defeats and our greatest disappointments, and, and sometimes the disappointments that follow these great victories have a little bit more of a sting. You know what I mean? Like, it's the story of the loved one who gets clean from an addiction and then relapses. It's the story of the couple who finds, finds out that they're going to be having a baby and then a miscarriage follows not too long after. I mean, it's the story of being cancer-free and then having uh, a, a scan with a mass on it the next time you visit the doctor. And I know these are hard and drastic stories, but what I'm trying to make a point here. And, and that's in order to see victory in the wilderness, in the wilderness of defeat, um, there, there's a truth. We need to hold on to this truth. And this truth is that the story is not over just because the story isn't good. And so here we have this moment where the Israelites are dealing with this tension. But I want want to remind you that that hard, painful, unfair, cruel circumstances are not the last chapter in your book. And just like the Israelites, we all get discouraged, and there's many times when we have valid reasons to be. Some would say that this is true now more than ever. If we feel like we've been wandering in our own wilderness for 40 years, we can allow ourselves to kind of fall into the same trap the Israelites did. And here's what happened with the Israelites, and here's what happens with us is that sometimes we allow the story to change our perspective of the writer. Situation like ours currently and situations like the Israelites face can lead us to question the God who started our story and to question the God who promises to finish it. Sometimes in life we get so focused on how we want things to work out, we can get so transfixed on trying to make things happen the way we want them to. You know, all I'm trying to say right now is that we can trust God to write our narrative. And if we're going to find victory in the midst of the wilderness of our life, we have to put the pen in God's hand, so to speak. You see, even when we face defeat, even when we have, uh, we can have confidence that our story is not over. Even when we have these wilderness moments, your story is not done. And that's because the writer always defines the story. The story never defines the writer. And so, thankfully, The remainder of this passage brings us directly to the heart of the writer and tells us exactly who he is. And thankfully, this author that we're talking about had an ultimate victory in mind, a victory that impacts the past, the present, and the future. In verses 6 through 9, to give you a recap, the Israelites face the consequences of their grumbling and their sin. And as drastic as this punishment seems, you need to remember that God is still cleansing his people and preparing them for the promised land. As a result of their grumbling against him, God sends fiery serpents, and they end up biting the Israelites, killing a lot of them, and leaving some of them crying out for help in pain. And as they cry out, God provides for the people a bronze snake as a means of salvation. All the Israelites have to do is look up at the serpent and be saved. That's it. You know, I asked myself this week, why a bronze snake? And and to be fair, I wanted to bring more into that, but I don't want to take a ton of time debating why this method was used. Instead, I want to show you how the salvation the bronze snake brings is just a foreshadowing of the salvation and the victory that you have access to. And if you want victory in your life, you only have to look up like the Israelites did. And unlike the victory of the Israelites, ours is a victory that we work from. It's not a victory that we work to. And so Numbers 21 is referenced directly by Jesus in the book of John. And Numbers 21 directly points to the solution in God's plan of complete restoration for his people and creation. This is the part, the part where you will find security for everything else that we talked about this morning. In this passage, we see Jesus speaking to Nicodemus about salvation, John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. He's talking to Nicodemus about salvation, and he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everybody who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, why would Jesus compare himself to a snake? Now, if I thought about this. If I were to compare prophets from other religions to a snake, right? those followers of that religion and that prophet would probably attack me. It would be an insult to their revered prophet, but in this text, we see Jesus took that strange story and he applies it to himself. Remember how I told you that the victory God really desires is our hearts? Well, this is the battle plan to win your heart. And I wanna show you how Christ brings victory no matter where we are and how the bronze serpent was meant to point you to victory you work from and a victory that you don't work towards. In order to do that, let me compare our lives to the Israelite story. And I'm going to do this as we close. In Numbers, the Israelites have a problem. The people in the wilderness were dying because of their sin, and they did not deserve to live because they had rebelled terribly against God and his goodness to them. And in our life, we have a problem. Because of sin, all people are under the curse of death. God cannot overlook sin or he would not be holy and just. And we cannot pay for our own sins because our good deeds are, as he says, filthy rags to him. Our good deeds cannot erase the penalty of our sins. And the only way to please a holy God is with a holy sacrifice. We, we were destined for defeat. And in Numbers, the snake-bitten people could not do anything to save themselves. They were dropping like flies. God had to provide a way for them to be healed or they all would die. And in our life, we have been infected with, infected with the venom of sin. And we cannot do anything to save ourselves. There's, there's not a cure God has to give us a cure for our condition because uh, our God works. Our good works are like filthy rags to him. So God in his grace provides this remedy that we could not have attained otherwise. <clears throat> the Israelites in, their, in this story needed a supernatural remedy. Moses didn't say, hey, give, me, give me a few days to think about this. And then he consults with all these leaders and he comes back and he's like, all right, I got an idea. Uh, I'm just going to make this bronze snake, and that's what we're going to do. If he did that, everybody would look at him like he was nuts. But in the same way, it was a supernatural remedy given from God, in the same way we need a supernatural remedy. And the cross is God's remedy. It didn't come from the world's most brilliant philosophers or, or religious geniuses. It came from God. This was his plan before the foundation of the world. And in Numbers, the snake on the pole was a sufficient remedy. Moses didn't say, look at the snake, go home and take two aspirin and you'll feel better. And and in our life, in the same way, the cross of Christ is sufficient for the salvation of the worst of us. You don't have to add anything to it. You don't have to give money to the church. You don't need to do penance to help pay for your sins. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing for you to do except look to him. And in Numbers, the snake was also a sure remedy, meaning that everybody who looked was cured on the spot. There wasn't a person who looked and then still died. There aren't any... And in our life, the same way, Jesus saves every sinner who believes in him. As he says, John 3, 15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. There aren't any cases that are too broken or too infected or too dark that God can't get into. And in Numbers, we see that the remedy had to be lifted up. And in Numbers, the remedy had to be, uh, as it says, as Moses lifted up the servant Uh, the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And in our life, it points to the fact that the cross was absolutely necessary to atone for our sins. The only way to satisfy God's perfect justice was for the sinless Son of Man to be lifted up on a cross as our substitute, our perfect substitute, who willingly took our punishment. He gave us the solution to the venom of sin that we did not have. And in Numbers, the only thing that cursed people have to do to be healed is to look to faith in God's remedy. God could have removed the deadly snakes, but instead he left the snakes and provided a remedy. And in our life, believing in him, believing in Jesus is equivalent to looking at the lifted up snake in the wilderness. In John 3.15, it says that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. But in verse 16, John clarifies and says that our faith is to be in Jesus, the Son of God. So in Numbers, the result of looking at the serpent was life. And in our life, the result, whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. And I don't know if you know this, but eternal life is not just about the end of our lives. Eternal life is, is, what they're saying is here and now, right? So in, in, in Revelation 21, it says eternal life is not only life forever, but abundant joyous life in the presence of God forever, without any sorrow or pain or death or sin. In the words of Psalm 16, it says it is to enjoy pleasures forever from God's right hand. As Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life that you may know the only true God in Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. As I want to invite the worship team to come up, I just want to tell you that the bronze serpent didn't fix the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. Jesus did. And since Jesus died on your behalf, and since, since he rose again to reign victorious over death, all you have to do is look to him. And so when you look to him, you will have victory now and forever. This means that if you look up and trust Jesus on your behalf as your substitute, you are victorious because he was. The righteousness and holiness of Christ now becomes yours. His ability to conquer sin now becomes accessible to you through him. As you seek victory in the wilderness, remember this, that sometimes God will take us to places of past defeat in order to really show us true victory. And remember that your story isn't over just because it isn't good. And remember to look up and keep your eyes on the God who is always victorious.